Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest in Sibylline's podcast series. My name is Eloise Scott, the Global Intelligence Manager. And today with me, we've got our sub-Saharan Africa expert, Benedict Manzin, and we'll be discussing the impact of the Russia-Ukraine conflict on Africa in particular. So, Ben, obviously, we've seen considerable focus on Central Asia and, of course, Ukraine and Russia itself and, and Eastern Europe in terms of the spillover effects of the conflict. But clearly, there's a much wider impact beyond those borders. So what would you say is sort of the immediate impact that we're seeing of this conflict on conditions within Africa? Obviously, food insecurity is a prominent concern, of course, not just in Africa itself, but really alongside that, what else should we be aware of? The conflict has had an immediate impact on the global commodity market and the effects are being felt in multifaceted ways. But I think it's really important that we highlight specifically for Africa the ways in which this conflict is likely to exacerbate developing humanitarian crises, you know, first and foremost, because of the impact on global food prices. And while Ukraine and Russia are prominent producers of all particular types of grain, and we've seen those prices already start to increase 50% in the Canadian market, even in just the immediate aftermath of the conflict. And we know that that's likely to get worse over the coming months and even year, because we're looking at immediate disruption to the supplies of that of commodity getting out of the country. We also know that there's considerable destruction of Ukraine's infrastructure, considerable disruption to the planting season and harvesting, and there will be disruption to harvesting. You know, we expect this challenge to go on for, for several months, so, you know, well into even 2023. While that's kind of concentrated around grains produced in Russia and Ukraine, obviously when that's translated into African markets, when those grains become more expensive, that's also going to push the prices up of other grains because you will find more people will switch to buying those grains in order to kind of mitigate those price rises. And that'll push those prices up as well. So it's quite a significant impact on consumers in Africa across the region, and not just for those individual consumers and governments that are attempting to provide subsidies and so on, but also for humanitarian organizations, which will now have to pay more to conduct their operations in country and provide the sort of food assistance and programs they, they're carrying out. These organizations already struggle to fill their budgets currently. Humanitarian partners just operating in the Horn of Africa were requesting $4.4 billion to meet their funding needs. And it seems like unlikely now that they'll even meet these requirements because obviously as we see the spillover of refugees from Ukraine into Europe and we see economic fallout, kind of expansion in poverty concentrated in Ukraine, you'll see more people will donate towards organizations dealing with Ukraine conflicts, you know, as is expected. But that will mean less money going towards issues in Africa, less money for these organizations to fund increasing costs. But aside from those humanitarian and agricultural issues and, and threats, this does provide some opportunities. Rising commodity prices and rising fuel prices will provide opportunities for energy exporters to increase their revenues and for producers of commodities and minerals that, that Russia is a, is a producer of, this provides an opportunity for them to take up buyers that are shifting away from Russia and seeking, um, seeking new sellers. So uh, in South Africa, for example, they produce alongside Russia, 80% of the world's global platinum, 70% of uh, global palladium. And th- these are necessary minerals for use in 
catalytic converters and in the automotive industry, producers will likely be looking for new sellers because of the sanctions on Russia. And this provides an opportunity for South Africa to benefit from that. But there are challenges to that, obviously, because South Africa has a number of infrastructure issues which will likely impede its ability to effectively absorb that demand. While countries like Nigeria, major energy oil producers, they primarily produce crudes, and so they are importers of refined petrol. So rising prices, while it provides them to, to make more money from their exports, they also are costing them more to bring the fuel in. So actually the, the gains are, are sort of undercut by that trend. I think it's really interesting that you ended on some more sort of opportunities, actually. I think those are, those are really interesting points to draw out. And I think you're right to highlight that actually, while they may look like opportunities on the surface, actually, when you dig a bit deeper, there are clearly much more concerning sort of structural issues that a lot of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa need to address. But I guess staying away from the opportunities for now, what do you see as being the, the kind of the major fallout of these worrying trends? I know you've, you've been on these podcasts before and spoken a lot about worrying trends across the Sahel. Um, you know, domestic unrest and, and the threat of terrorism have, have been particular themes. But what, what is the fallout, do you think, from, from these more concerning trends that you're seeing? I sort of hinted at this earlier when I was talking about, you know, a number of humanitarian crises that are developing across the region. And I think one of the most prominent will be drought conditions in the Horn of Africa, because they've had three successive rainy seasons, which were below average. These are communities that are frankly less equipped to handle additional strain. Their reserves and capacity of their local governments to, to provide them assistance is, is limited. And if we see another failed rainy season, which is possible, but there has been some signs that we may see a, a rise in rains over the coming couple of months, but still up in the air, then the number of people in need of humanitarian aid is estimated to increase significantly. That's likely to play into a number of ongoing political crises across countries in the Horn of Africa. So in Ethiopia, you obviously have the ongoing war with Tigray. But aside from that, there, is, there are conflicts with rebel groups across the country. The Oromo Liberation Army across the centre of the country, the Benishangul People's Liberation Movement in the west of the country. And as Ethiopia struggles to address a kind of mounting food security crisis, it's likely that these movements will benefit from greater levels of public dissatisfaction and, and anger at the government's inability to, to provide necessary assistance. Similar trends can be seen in Somalia, where, again, you have high levels of anti-government sentiment amidst an ongoing political crisis where the legislative elections have been postponed and postponed and postponed. They were meant to be finalised in December 2020, and they still have not filled all the seats for the parliament. And until the parliament's filled, a presidential election cannot take place. There's a lot of anger at the fact that the president's term has been extended beyond its constitutional limits. And so there is a threat that if humanitarian conditions continue to deteriorate, rising domestic unrest will just add fuel to an already ongoing fire, which uh, is likely to be exploited by groups like Al-Shabaab, which may be in a position in rural areas to take up some of that dissatisfaction and feelings of marginalisation from communities that are not receiving necessary aid which can't get the necessary aid from humanitarian organisations for issues that we covered earlier, which enables them to boost their influence, increase their numbers and develop their capacity to conduct attacks, not only in Somalia and particularly Mogadishu, but also across the border into Kenya. And, and frankly, I could go on. Another major threat in the region is what's been going on in Sudan following the coup. There was already regular mass demonstrations against the coup, which are now likely to be exacerbated by massive inflation and riding prices of food. So aside from these sort of socioeconomic consequences and issues that you've talked about, Ben, 
how does the greater antagonism that we're seeing play out between the West and Russia impact politics in the region? Obviously, you know, there are some interesting dynamics we could talk about from the sort of the Cold War era. Maybe you could explain those a little bit more as well. But generally, what is kind of West-Russia dynamic? What kind of impact is it going to have on politics in the region? Yeah, just to kind of go over how African states responded to the divisions that existed during the Cold War. Obviously, both the West and Russia were willing to prop up governments that backed its positions ideologically and geopolitically. And so a number of governments were able to rely upon quite uncritical support from both the West and Russia to do whatever they liked domestically, provided that they towed a particular line. It seems likely that similar dynamics in an environment where the priority becomes shutting out either the West or Russia will again provide more opportunities to autocratic states and autocratic leaders than necessarily democratic ones. And we're already seeing that dynamic kind of begin to play out in places like Sudan, where for quite a while, the Sudanese government have posited the idea or kind of played with the idea of, of a Russian military base on the Red Sea. And we've seen, well, since the Ukraine conflict, visits by uh, Hamdan Dagalo, the deputy of the deputy leader of the Sovereign Council, Sudan's currently highest governing body, visit Moscow and sort of allude to potentially advancing this, whilst you have other members of the military sort of trying to cozy up to um, the US and look for them to sort of pull back from this talk of sanctions and actually begin to recommit some of the financial aid that had been promised back when the military and civilian sections of the Sudanese government were working in harmony before the coup in October. Now, that, that can go one of two ways. That can either significantly strain relations within the military and sort of split the unity of that body even, even more and, and drive in fighting and, and significantly destabilise the government. Or it could provide the military wiggle room to sort of appeal to both sides to try and get the best deal. And, and by doing that, they might be able to encourage the US to walk back on some of its threats purely for the sake of trying to prevent Russia from gaining a geopolitical advantage in this sphere. But alternatively, for states that are already sort of thoroughly outside or increasingly outside of Western approval, greater cooperation with Russia will give them opportunities to do different things, basically. So in Mali, for example, the military government has basically completely pulled out with its European partners. Uh, the EU military mission and the French deployments are both moving out of Mali over the next few months and redeploying their troops to Niger to conduct their kind of Sahelian counter-terrorism operations. By shunting those alliances and working closer with Russia, it gives the Malian government the space to pursue potentially new ways of dealing with the conflict. So the EU was very committed to enforcing a peace agreement between the Malian government and Tuareg militias in the north of the country, which had been reached in 2015 in the Algiers Accord. This was seen as a sort of a, as a necessary basis of stability for the country, but it was hated by many people in the south who felt like it was essentially a way of rewarding rebellious northerners. Now, the Malian government is no longer working with the EU or working with them less and working more with Russia. It seems likely that 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 whole accord is, is being increasingly threatened. And we're already seeing Malians increasingly move into the north, into areas where they were meant to be more under the control of Tuaregs, and Tuaregs were meant to have greater autonomy. And so by giving these governments more options, it, it threatens to destabilise a number of situations in the region and threatens to exacerbate conflict 
by giving authoritarians say essentially more free reign. Yeah, that's a really interesting point to, to sort of semi-conclude on. I guess I've just got one more, I guess the million dollar question, you, you've teased out some really interesting trends and obviously spoken about a, a number of countries and areas of, of sub-Saharan Africa. What would you say is, is sort of your most pressing area or country of concern? Yeah, obviously there's a number of countries that we're watching very closely, but the, the one that I'm, I'm most concerned about, and we've talked about it a few times in the podcast, is Sudan, because here it feels like the impact of rising fuel and food prices and the way in which that will drive inflation in Sudan really threatens to further destabilize the situation by significantly increasing the domestic resistance to the Sudanese military government, which, which threatens to increase pressure on the hunter. And there's a danger that that pre- pressure will drive tensions between the between factions within the military. And when you add into that the possible cozying up to Russia or trying to build relations with the West, that might further exacerbate those tensions. And when you have you know, two leaders kind of looking in two completely different directions, cooperation between those bodies may completely break down. And if that happens, then we're looking at militia groups loyal to people like Handan Degalo and the army potentially openly fighting in areas across the country. And that threatens, of course, to completely undermine peace agreements which were made with Darfur and, and southern rebel groups last year, at which point you're seeing a kind of broader expansion of conflict across the country, which threatens to drive another migration crisis in the region. Thanks, Ben. Thanks as ever for those excellent insights. Definitely some some worrying trends to watch out for and obviously some key countries of concern there as well that I think you've highlighted really well. Now we'll quickly hand over to our Asia Pacific analyst, Supriya, who will talk us through some of the key events and flashpoints to watch in the coming week or so. Thank you, Eloise. So the first event to mention is upcoming protests planned by pro-Palestinian groups to mark Palestine Land Day on the 30th of March. Now, demonstrations have already been announced in Morocco, but they are likely to also take place in Israel and other territories housing Palestinians. And there remains thus an elevated risk of violent clashes between protesters and local security personnel on the day. The second event to highlight is on the 1st of April in Singapore. The ongoing vaccinated travel lane system will be replaced with the vaccinated travel framework in line with the government's new COVID-19 policy, which is a new living with COVID strategy. This will remove the quota on the number of passengers allowed to enter Singapore. It will enable fully vaccinated travelers to enter with a, without a pre-departure COVID test and remove any other additional testing requirements for arrivals, which will really help with any future travel for both business and leisure purposes. So these are the two events to look out for. Thank you very much, Supriya. Again, I think that's just a good reminder that while obviously Ukraine, Russia is taking up a lot of the focus, there is clearly a lot else um, to be watching out for across all of our regions that we cover. So many thanks to both of you again for joining me today. Um, as ever, if this discussion has inspired any questions or any discussions that you wish to have with us, please do get in touch at info at Speak to you all soon. <laughs>